So hey, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Acts 16. Acts 16, we're continuing in our incredible verse-by-verse study through this book. And I want to thank Josh Dojero for preaching last week. Did a phenomenal job out of Isaiah about idols of the heart. I really enjoyed listening to that earlier this week. But we are back in Acts. And so Acts 16, 16 to 40. And the title for this morning's sermon is Make the Most Out of Every Opportunity. Make the most out of every opportunity. It's a long narrative section about the conversion of the Philippian jailer. So that's what we're looking at this morning. I'm going to read the passage and then we'll dive into our time here together this morning. Acts 16, 16 says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I'm commanding you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods." And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembled with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace." But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Father, we wanna bow our heads before you this morning, thanking you for the reading of your word, an incredible story of the conversion of this Philippian jailer, I pray that we would look at the example of Paul and Silas, who in the midst of great difficulty and pain, took the time to worship at midnight in such a powerful way that it impacted the prisoners around them and this jail guard forever. I pray that we would take that same opportunity to make the most of each and every day. All of our trials and all of our triumphs would all be used with gratitude, 
appreciation, patience, and adherence to your word and your truth and the promise of salvation for all who will believe. Be glorified in our time together in this text, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has been a little over 100 years since the Titanic, the greatest ship of all time, sank to the bottom of the Atlantic on April the 15th, 1912. On its maiden voyage voyage from Southampton, England to New York City, this tragedy killed more than 1,500 passengers. The unsinkable ship did just that. It sank, right? And many movies and documentaries and books have somewhat familiarized us with some of the passengers, such as entrepreneur John Jacob Astor IV or unsinkable Molly Brown. Yet one of the most supreme stories of the Titanic involves a historic pastor and his passion to preach the gospel and to call people to repent with his dying breath. When pastor and preacher John Harper and his six-year-old daughter boarded the Titanic, it was for the privilege of becoming the pastor of one of the greatest churches in America, Moody Church in Chicago named after the famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody. The church was anxiously awaiting his arrival, not only to hear him preach, but to also meet their next pastor, as Harper had planned to accept their invitation. Harper was known as an engaging preacher, and he had pastored two churches in the UK, up in Glasgow and also in London. His preaching style was suited as an evangelist and testified by the words of another local pastor. He wrote about him that he was a great open-air preacher and could always command large and appreciative audiences. He could also deal with all kinds of interrupters. His great and intelligent grasp of Bible truths enabled him to successfully combat all assailants. This is a gifted preacher. And when the Titanic hit This iceberg, Harper successfully led his six-year-old daughter to a lifeboat. Being a widower, a widower himself, he may have been allowed to join her, but instead he chose to forsake his own rescue, choosing to provide the masses with one more chance to know Christ. Harper ran from person to person, He began to tell them about the joy of knowing Christ even in the midst of great tragedy. As the water began to submerge the unsinkable ship, Harper was heard shouting, men, women, children, and the unsaved head to the lifeboats. And he was rebuffed by a certain man who was uh, refusing to be saved and Harper gave him his own life vest saying, you will need this way more than I will. Up until the last moment on the ship, Harper pleaded with people to give their lives to Jesus. The ship eventually disappeared beneath the deep, frigid waters, leaving hundreds floundering in its wake with no realistic chance for rescue. Harper struggled through hypothermia to swim to as many people as he could, still sharing the gospel. Harper eventually would lose his battle with hypothermia, but not before giving many people one last glorious witness of Christ. When the Titanic set sail, there were delineations of three classes of passengers. You had the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class boarding the ship that day. Yet immediately after the tragedy, the White Star Line in Liverpool, England, placed a board outside of its uh, office, and it said there were two classes of passengers now reading, known to be saved and those known to be lost. The owners of the Titanic simply were uh, saying what John Harper already knew, that there were two types of people on that ship. There were those who would be saved, and there were those who would be lost, and over A hundred years after the Titanic, my encouragement to us today is that we would be even as zealous as Harper was on that dreadful night to share with others the opportunity that they have to still come to Christ while the day is long. I mean, the truth is the ship is going down. There's ever a time in our culture that we feel like we're on the sinking Titanic. It would be now. 
And what part are you playing as a, as a man or as a woman, as a young man or a young woman, to preach the gospel with your dying breath? What God has called us to do is to lock arms together and that we would be a voice of reason and a voice of hope and a voice of gospel truth in the midst of the great darkness. God has called us to be a witness. And I would say to you this morning, what an honor, what a privilege to be a soldier in the Lord's army. And so today, I want us to examine an exciting day and night in the life of the Apostle Paul, who was a great witness to the power of the gospel of Christ in his day of tragedy. This morning, I'm going to give you five ways to make the most out of every opportunity. So there in your outline, we'll look at number one, don't be discouraged by obstacles in your life, verses 16 to 24. Number two, persevere in prayer and praise. Number three, trust in the deliverer and not in the deliverance. Number four, maximize every opportunity to witness. And then number five, strive to ensure the legacy of faith. That's what we'll be looking at together this morning. Let's start with number one. Don't be discouraged by obstacles in your life. The first blank, if you are taking notes today, simply says a demonic interference. A demonic interference, and we see that in verses 16 to 18. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And she came out, or the spirit came out that very hour. Now, as we look at these verses, 16 to 18, we got to be reminded that we're being connected with the whole chapter, chapter 16. Last time we were here in this chapter, we looked at the incredible conversion of Lydia. And while she was a, a seller of purple goods from Thyatira, she had apparently relocated to Philippi and she was a worshiper of the one true God. And we also read about how it was God who opened her heart all by his sovereign grace. He, he saved her to where she was born again. And Lydia was very instrumental in the, the planting of this new church there in Philippi. She, she was obviously one who would have given, one who would have influenced others and been a big part of this conversion. And this was, this, this was one of the, the first converts, probably the first convert of all of Europe. And she was, a, she was a godly lady. This is an incredible story of what's happening here in Philippi, which was a Roman colony. And yet we know that when God is on the move, doing great things, saving the lost and building his church, Satan is sure to try to fight against it. And that's exactly what we see throughout all of Paul's missionary journeys. He had to face the, the, uh, the man Simon the sorcerer up in Samaria. He had to face on the Isle of Cyprus that false prophet Bar-Jesus. There's always a clash between light and darkness, between good and evil, between those who work for God and those who work for the devil. So we shouldn't be surprised that as God is taking root there in Philippi that there would be this kind of opposition. And so Paul and the other missionaries were heading back to the place of prayer. We talked last week that they met by the river. There wasn't enough Jews there to have a synagogue. So they would know that it was the place of prayer by the river where they could have some time in the word. And so they're heading back there to pray again when this slave girl who had a spirit of divination and and brought her owners, the text says, much gain by fortune telling. Again, have you ever noticed it's usually that when you're headed to the place of prayer, that you seem to be distracted with the most awkward and odd thoughts and interventions. And at this point, Satan brings this demon-possessed lady. Satan absolutely hates it when we enter into prayer. He knows that when we enter into prayer, Satan has to flee. And so he does whatever he can to distract us from being on our knees before our Heavenly Father. And this word divination here literally is the word for serpent, or for Python. This concept of a Python telling the future goes back to a city, uh, a Greek city of Delphi, where the god Apollo was believed to be embodied in a Python snake. The original priestess at Delphi was thought to be possessed by Apollo and therefore was able to predict the future. Therefore, anyone possessed by the Python spirit could allegedly foretell coming events. 
Now, no doubt in this case, the slave girl was possessed by a demon. Whether or not this girl was actually able to accurately produce a prophecy about the future is yet to be seen. I mean, even fortune tellers today are not able to accurately and precisely predict the future. They, they deceive their listeners by giving generalities of the past and generalities of the future, but do not achieve in any sort the perfection of predicting the future. That's why they're known as false prophets. Just because they get it vaguely right or occasionally right, or a 50-50 they get it right, doesn't somehow make them a prophet of God. In fact, all they got to do is miss one prophecy on one account that they would be then condemned and, con and declared as a false prophet. So I'm just saying this girl had some ability, but Luke notes that this demon-possessed girl, the real focus here is that she's bringing her masters a lot of profit by doing this fortune-telling. And this claim to fortune-telling and some amount of demonic power was certainly uh, uh, at work there. This greatly appealed to the Greco-Roman culture. One commentator writes, Greeks and Romans put great stock on augury and divination. No commander would set out on a major military campaign, nor would an emperor make an important decree without first consulting an oracle to see how things might turn out. A slave girl with a clairvoyant gift was vertible, a vertible gold mine for her owners. So this is in a culture where the pagan culture of Greece and Rome, they welcomed this kind of input and they, they had an awe and respect for anybody that was claiming to be speaking for the gods or somehow predicting the future. And so now we see this slave girl is being used as a hapless tool of Satan. And she's following after Paul and the other missionaries. And the text says she's crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. This is actually a very subtle and dangerous attack of the devil. This was a bold attempt to infiltrate a deadly tear among the wheat. I mean, what the demon-possessed girl said was actually true. The term, the Most High God, was a clear Old Testament designation to the God of Israel and his absolute sovereignty. The Most High God, that reference there, appears over or almost 50 times in the Old Testament. It's in verses like Psalm 78, 35. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. Daniel chapter eight verse uh, chapter five verse eighteen says, "O King, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty." So when this girl's following Paul and the other missionaries, saying these men are serving the Most High God, this was a true statement. She also was true when she said they spoke the way of salvation. They did speak of Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. And it's the father of lies, the devil, who actually sometimes speaks the truth when it suits his purposes. He is attempting in this moment to disguise himself and this demon in this girl as somehow an angel of light. We understand from 2 Corinthians 11:13 and 14 to be careful, for such men are false apostles, deceiving workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And some of the devil's most effective and diabolical work is done in the name of Christ and in the name of religion. Just because somebody says they love God or they love Christ doesn't mean that they're accurately serving the God of heaven. We understand that from, from all of the cults that we sometimes have to stand on guard for today. And so what we see here is that basically Satan was using a little truth to ensnare people in a false system or belief. And since the girl with the python spirit was, was somehow uh, attacking Paul and, 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 and bothering them, it can be assumed that it, at the same time she was saying the same thing they were saying. And so people may have been confused to think, well, is she with them? Because they're saying they serve the most high God and Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's what this girl is saying. And so it would have been, been bringing some confusion to their missionary strategy and to, their, to, to, to the preaching of the word there. And so just like Jesus silenced demons in the Gospels, it was time for Paul to silence this demon. 
And so as this girl kept on doing this for days, I love how the text says here, Paul got greatly annoyed. Don't you just appreciate that in the Bible? You're like, yeah, even Paul the apostle, I know what that's like. You ever been greatly annoyed by something or by somebody? They just keep saying something, they keep doing something, you're like, I am greatly annoyed right now. <laughs> just like the apostle Paul, come out of her in the name of Jesus. All right, don't do that last step, all right? But you understand here that Paul had kind of had it up to here with this girl. He knows what's going on. He knows she doesn't belong to their group. He knows that she's demon-possessed. And so what does he do? He calls out to the God of heaven. It is a good reminder, God, uh, Paul calls out to God. I mean, we could ask ourselves, what do you do when you get annoyed with a particular situation? What do you do? Do you complain? Do you lash out? It can be somewhat understandable, but again, God, uh, excuse me, Paul turns to God for help. And as an apostle, he does cast out this demon. And so after this girl kept on doing this for many days, Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, in obedience to Paul's apostolic authority, and mainly because of the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the demon came out that very moment. Christ has defeated every foe. Christ has defeated death, the devil, and his demons. Christ has defeated all powers and all authorities. And oh, how I, I love that hymn that reminds me of that, In the Name of Jesus. It reads like this, In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we have the victory. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, Satan, you have to flee. Oh, what can ever stand before us when we call on that great name, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, we have the victory. It's just a reminder to us that you don't have to be afraid even when there is spiritual warfare going down and you are experiencing something that seems to be out of the norm. You're experiencing paranormal activity or whatever it is that you're facing. You're like, I stand on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to be afraid. Now, I would say that the ability to cast out demons, especially, marked Christ's apostles. Mark chapter 3, 14 and 15, and he appointed the 12, that would be Jesus, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I believe there's a special emphasis on the apostolic office to be able to preach the gospel, as that text says, Mark 3, 14 and 15, and they had received authority by Christ to cast out demons. I think that that is also revealed to us in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So apostles were known to have special powerful gifts, signs and wonders were performed by them. I believe that this idea of casting out of a demon for this slave girl was one of the signs of a true apostle, that being Paul. I don't believe that that's necessarily a gift that each and every one of us possess and exercise today. There's a lot of people who were into the idea of exercising demons. When I was in Savannah, Georgia, attending a Southern Baptist church, we had a deacon at our church who was known as the exerciser. And I'm like, hey, man, I heard you're the exerciser. Talk to me about that. This is at a Baptist church. And he was like, well, you know, the battle that we fight, it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and authorities. And I happen to have a special gift to cast out demons. And people know me around the state and when they have a particularly struggled young individual, young teenager, college student who's kind of fighting with this, they bring them to me and I cast them out. And I said, would you call me next time this happens? I want to show up and see this. Uh, he never called me, but I'm just saying like, it's just interesting. Again, I'm just cautioning us, just cautioning us that I don't think our mission in life is to go around and identify and cast out demons in the same way. Now, I would say, I do believe people can be demon-possessed today, and I think that we should fight spiritually. And my fight would be more of prayer. My fight would be more of evangelizing and calling the individual. Say, hey, look, 
I know that right now you're out of sorts. I don't know what's going on exactly, but I want to call you right now to come to Christ. And I, and, I, and I would just be, if they're not able to have any type of reasonable conversation, then I might, I might uh, pause and wait for that opportunity to do so. And if they were completely out of control, obviously I would call the authorities because there may be a medical emergency, there may be a harm to themselves or someone else, and, but when they're in their right mind, so to speak, I would continue to maybe, if I had the chance, you know, if I was in this, I would come to them and pray that God would give me wisdom in that moment to evangelize them, to call them out of darkness into life. I, I believe I've shared this with you before, and I'm way off my notes now, so, but I know you're loving it. You're like, keep going, Tyson, <laughs> keep going. So uh, MacArthur talks about how this young girl came in his office. Have you read this? He comes in his office and he says he tried to cast out the demon for like two hours. This is back like in the 70s before he wrote Charismatic Chaos. <laughs> so uh, he, he tries to cast this demon out for like two hours to no avail. And then he starts evangelizing her and calling her to repent. And he, in the book where he writes this on spiritual warfare, writes about his encouragement is what I was just saying to you. Why not evangelize, call them, because what we care about is their soul. And what we want them to see is the gospel. And what we don't want to necessarily do is the, you know, th this demon left and, and then nothing is replaced and th that demon whooped up on the seven sons of, of Sceva. You remember that story? So the idea here is what we're really after is the soul of this individual, instead of being dominated by Satan or a demon, to rather be refreshed and regenerated by the gospel truth. So our real objective in that moment, if you were in that moment, would be to preach the gospel. And I know I'll get some questions and emails about that, so I welcome them as they come uh, this week. So this is what Paul does, though, and so we're appreciating what it is that Paul does in this moment. So by no way am I trying to minimize and be like, well, it's not that big of a deal. This was a huge deal. What Paul did was incredible. It's what God had called him as an apostle, having that kind of authority to command in the name of Jesus for this demon to leave, and it did. And we can rejoice in that and be overwhelmed with encouragement for that. I'm just saying that the application, I think, for us today would be rather turn to Ephesians 6, uh, not at this moment, but remind yourself that we do the battles we do with the armor of God, and that would be how I would approach it with that and evangelism. Let me move on. Verses 19 to 24, I want you to see also a devastating interruption. This is really a devastating interruption in a way. Verse 19 and following says this. But when her owners saw that her hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and all the, the, the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Again, I would say, as we look at verses 19 to 24, how sad it is to think of that cruel and inhumane institution of slavery. And we see in verse 19 that it's really the selfish reaction here of these demon-possessed girls' masters is they're only concerned about their own pocketbooks. They're only concerned about their, their wallets. They're concerned about their financial gain that's now been ruined. Instead of being thankful for the fact that this poor girl who was possessed by a demon who's now been set free, instead of being thankful for her freedom and her relief, they're upset and they're angry and they want to do business with the people who made this happen. Kind of reminds me a little bit, their attitude, of what happened uh, in, in the Sea of Galilee in Mark 5 with the Gerizim demoniac when Jesus cast out those demons called legion and put them into the pigs and they ran down into the Sea of Galilee and drowned when the people showed up. They didn't say, oh man, thank you, Jesus, for the freedom that you gave this man. They said, Jesus, we hate your guts for taking 2,000 or so of our pigs and killing them in the water. Get out of our face. And they want to just drive him out of town because they weren't appreciative of, of the freedom that Christ brings. And we see the same type mindset a little bit later. We'll see it in Acts chapter 19 when we read about how the Ephesian craftsmen who made idols to the goddess Artemis became violently hostile to the Christians that were there and they, uh, who, cast, uh, who, who were, who were uh, opposing that kind of idolatry. And they wanted them to be uh, 
kicked out of town. So what we're saying is this, this clearly illustrates that the love of money is the root of all forms of evil. The love of money blurs spiritual discernment. The love of money is driven by selfishness, pride, and idolatry. So these slave owners dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the rulers to ridicule them. And they, it says here in verse 20 that these men were disturbing the city as if Paul and, and as Silas were somehow, uh, really? They're disturbing the city? Like their city was already disturbed. Like their city was already defiled. Like Philippi was already so materialistic. It was so barbarous. It was so sadistic because of their own sinful behavior that they would rather have a demon-possessed girl going around town saying whatever she wants and people looking at that to make money off of it than to have some type of real peace. I mean, verse 21 was actually true. There was a law forbidding Roman citizens to practice any foreign religion that had not been sanctioned by the state. However, this law was rarely enforced. Um, the, the charge that the missionaries were somehow causing a disturbance in the city by creating mass confusion was false. Paul was seeking to bring God's peace to the city, not to have an uproar of consternation. But the darkness always hates the light. People who are consumed with their flesh hate the things of the spirit. Those who are enslaved to their sin hate the freedom that only Christ can bring. And so things in this situation go from bad to worse as the, this devastating interruption of Paul's second missionary journey ended up with Paul and Silas being attacked, being stripped of their garments, and being beaten with rods. And while the charges against Paul and Silas were false, they were enough to manipulate the crowd and stir them up into a frenzy and into some violence. And the chief magistrates had failed miserably to uphold the highly prized standards of Roman justice. They did not bother to investigate the charges, conduct a proper hearing, or give Paul and Silas a chance to defend themselves. And so with a bundle of rods tied together, they brutally beat these men, a punishment which Paul endured three times. And so at this point, after they had been struck with many blows... They threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. What a horrible reception in their first European city where they had preached the gospel. Certainly, this should remind us of the truth of 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's what we're seeing is how Paul and Silas are going to embody that attitude, even though they've been beaten to a pulp. And this is just showing us that anti-Semitism is not a modern phenomenon. It has its origins in the ancient world. In fact, about the same time, Claudius issued an order to expel all Jews from Rome. And so this anti-Semitic attitude may explain why it was only Paul and Silas who were arrested, whereas Luke was a Gentile and Timothy was a half-Gentile. Those two guys weren't in prison with Paul and Silas. And so at this point, the jailer put Paul and Silas into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. They are in maximum security. Right, their feet were fastened in these wooden stocks that were designed to separate the legs and often cause severe cramping. The authorities were taking no chances that their prisoners might escape. And so these two battered and bleeding men lay there in pain in what appears to be a hopeless situation. But we must remember that no prison can hold that which God wants to release. In Acts 5.19, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought the apostles out. In Acts 12, an angel had awakened Peter and his chains fell off and Peter exited the prison. The doors opened before him and Paul and Silas were about to experience another amazing rescue by the power of God. Obstacles in life will come. Your plans will be ruined. Your expectations in life will fall short. 
I don't think Paul and Silas just assumed all of a sudden they're going to be beaten in stocks in prison that day in Philippi. Life happens. Your day will be interrupted. But be encouraged that in it all, God wants to teach you something about his grace. And God wants to give you a different kind of opportunity to glorify him in whatever situation he takes you in. And in some ways, there's this human response of, oh, no. And in other ways, there's this human response that we're learning to have of like, oh, boy, I wonder what God's going to do now. Because this is ridiculous. I'm in the midst of a real pickle here. And yet, because I have my faith, because I have my trust in God and I stand on his word, God's about to do something pretty amazing. And we already know that doesn't always mean you get out of jail. There's martyrs who give their life for Christ. But in this situation, we can certainly be encouraged that help is on the way. And so the second way to make the most out of every opportunity is this. Number two, persevere in prayer and praise. We can say here your first blank, a time to pray and sing. I love that about verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I mean, it's easy, isn't it, for us to become discouraged by obstacles in life? It's easy for that to happen, we, but we have to continue to cry out to God for help, to, to keep our focus on him. Now, you might be discouraged right now about some difficulty in your life, or you are, are dealing with a wayward child or a health issue or financial difficulty, or maybe something else. Can I just remind you today that in the midst of your difficulty, Colossians 2, 3, uh, Colossians 3, 2 through 3 stands true. Set your mind on things above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, in the midst of our deepest, darkest trials, God's calling us to set our minds above on Christ to look to him. And I would just say, it's easy to praise God when all is going well. When you got a lot of money in the bank, you're feeling better than you've ever felt in all your life. The girl you just asked on that date said yes. Your ball team just won the championship. You know, your marriage is in that sweet period of time that you haven't experienced maybe in a little while. And you have an all paid trip to Hawaii in your coming week. You're like, oh, let's praise God today. I love Jesus. But on the day that it's really hard and that girl broke up with you and your bank account is upside down and you haven't had a break in years and you've got some type of pending report from the doctor appointment coming up this week, it's something, it can be in the flesh. It can be very, very hard to worship God on those tough days. But what I love about this story is this is Paul and Silas in their toughest day. They've been, they've been mocked. They've been ridiculed. They've been beaten. They're very uncomfortable. This isn't like large screen TV, air-conditioned jail cell here. All right, this is like their feet are in stocks. They're cramping up. And what are they doing? Oh, it says in verse 25 about midnight. I mean, they've already maybe been here for hours, and now it's just midnight. They're not sleeping. Obviously, you can't sleep in this condition. So what are they doing? They're just singing praises to God. They're praying and singing to God. What an incredible story. I mean, what an incredible example, right? I mean, what are they doing? They're praying and praising God. How could these two missionaries praise God under such circumstances? And the answer is because they're looking to Christ, not their circumstances. They're choosing in that moment not to complain, not to say we shouldn't be here, this is unjust, I wanna see my lawyer. Not saying that that's wrong, but I'm just saying that's not what they're doing. They're just saying, let's just pray. Let's pray to the God of heaven. And let's sing out to him because we love our God. They're exemplifying James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's when we're in our most difficult trials that God has our attention. And what he wants to teach us in that moment is that he loves us, that he's experienced what we're experiencing, at least in the person of Christ, that he wants us in that moment to grow us and to change us. He wants to produce in you in that moment steadfastness and endurance, and, and he wants to perfect you, and he wants to complete you, and he wants to fill up where you're lacking. First Thess 5.17 says that we are to pray without ceasing, 
And that's what they're doing. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I love that. It's rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Typically, we think, well, I'll rejoice when I feel like it. Because when I don't feel like it, I'm not going to rejoice because then I'll be a hypocrite. And then what we usually do? So therefore, I'm not going to rejoice. I don't have to do Philippians 4.4. Not till I feel like it. When I feel like it, I'll rejoice. But the verse is like, hey, rejoice always. In what? In your salvation? In the God who created you? And the fact that you have eternity with him forever and ever. And the fact that you can open your eyes and see most of the time that you have a life to live for his glory. You know, I was at the same conference with Lisa and a few others. We mentioned that to you back in uh, early September. And we got to hear from Johnny Erickson Tata. And every time I hear her, I'm just always really encouraged. And she talked about in this conference for a few minutes about how the hardest trial that she's had in her life is not being a quadriplegic. As you know, she can't have full use of her arms and legs. And you would think that that's the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody, and that's her biggest trial. And she would say, I can do quadriplegia. What I can't do is the chronic pain. Most folks don't know I'm in chronic pain every day and oftentimes all through the night. And there's so many times I'm laying in my bed. This is Johnny talking. So many times I'm in my bed at night and I can barely make it because I'm hurting so badly. And in those moments is when I sing. It's in those moments I, I try to recite scripture and I sing hymns to God through the night. And that's what gets me through. And I just think, what a beautiful example, right? That when you're in a difficulty, we tend, to, we tend to just move to, I'm upset, I'm angry, I want to vent, I want, I want out, and there's nothing wrong with pursuing justice, but I'm just saying, in this moment, these, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul and Silas, his counterpart, are setting for us an amazing example. They're praying, and they're praising God. And, and really what happens, your next blank says, it's a time to influence others. Did you catch that in the second half of verse 25? They're singing and, and praying to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They're listening, they have their attention. Again, when everything's going well, people expect you to, to, to be excited. But when things are going bad, that's when people start to really watch you. That's when people want to see what is this person really made of on their deepest, darkest day? How will they respond now? And when they see these apostles or Paul and Silas praising God, I think it's a huge testimony to the other ones there in prison with them. And it's just a reminder of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. You know, there's times we're in that pain, in that difficulty, and you feel like this is never going to end. I've had this all day. I've been hurting like this for a week. This has been going on for a year. My whole lifetime is filled with emotional pain, physical pain, all kinds of pain. But the Bible says it's just a light, momentary affliction. And what is it doing? It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's what Paul and Silas are doing for us. They're, they're doing 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Basically, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. I'm content, Paul says, with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, calamities, because it's when I'm weak that I know I'm strong. And so really the key to having joy in every circumstance is to be filled with the Spirit, to be focused on God, to continue to set your mind on things above. And so we're learning this morning about maximizing opportunities to witness. Don't be discouraged with obstacles in your life the demon-possessed slave girl, persevere in prayer and praise in the midst of the prison cell. And the third way that you can make the most of every opportunity is trust in the deliverer, not in the deliverance. Look at verses 26 and 27. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had all escaped. Now, don't you know what I would have been doing and probably you would have been doing if you were praising God and an earthquake came and your chains fell off, you would be like, "Woo, glory, it's another jailbreak, I'm out of here, right? Wouldn't you have? 
I would have been like running, lickety split, out the door, cross the hill, swim across the river, and I'd have been gone. And I think some of you would have joined me. But I'm just always amazed that Paul's like, hey, we're still, we're right here. The, the, the earthquake happened, their chains are loosed, the prison guard knew that the, the, his own uh, penalty for letting the prisoners escape would be to kill himself because they're going to kill him if, if he doesn't do it. And yet Paul is saying, we are still here. Why was Paul still there? Because notice, again, the, the, the third heading says he's trusting in the deliverer, not necessarily in the deliverance. It's possible to want deliverance so badly that it becomes idolatry for you. And you're saying, all I want is to be delivered. I don't care about anything else. And what Paul is saying is, I'd like to be delivered, I'm sure, humanly speaking, but I have a greater mission than being set free from this jail. I'm to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to take a page from Paul's book here. We don't want to worship our plans. We want to worship the planner. We don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. We don't worship the deliverance. We worship the deliverer. And sometimes God may deliver us and sometimes he may not. Whether he does or doesn't, our job is to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job said in chapter one. He didn't say that in Job chapter 42 and he gets it all back. In chapter one, he said, you know what? The Lord gives, the Lord takes, but blessed be the name of the Lord. We have to have that Isaiah 55 mindset. My thoughts are not his thoughts, right? My ways are not his ways. They are higher and they are beyond us. And so I just want to serve him. And so we don't run. Instead, your next blank says we stay and be a witness. Stay and be a witness. Verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're all here. He decides to stay. A reference there for your cross-reference. You could look up Daniel 3, 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say, hey, look, we know God could save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you. We're here for the long haul, whether it be life or death. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And it's just showing us that we got to get outside of life being just about what I want, what I need, what I think. And it ought to be like, God, what are you calling me to do in this moment? How could I best glorify you? Oh, there's a prison guard here that's about to kill himself and presumably go to hell on his death. Or I'm still here. I could maybe take this moment and share with him about the goodness of God. And God might seem uh, fit to save this man. That would be of far greater eternal value than me just getting out of here. And so the fourth way to make the most of every opportunity is just that. Number four, maximize every opportunity to witness. Notice your next blank, the conversion of the jailer. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, have you ever thought about, like, man, I would love to be an evangelist if people would just come up to me and say, how do I be saved? Wouldn't you love that? Don't you think you would be a pretty good evangelist if every day somebody came up to you and said, can you please show me the way? Has that ever happened to you? Somebody came up and said, show me how to be saved. It might happen on rare occasion throughout your life. And when it does, I hope you'll think back to this text and be like, man, here's one of those opportunities. I'm going to take advantage of this, all for God's glory, but this is so cool. But I would suggest to you the reason that you don't have that happening in your life regularly and the reason I don't have that happening in my life regularly is because we're living more for ourselves than we are living for God. And if you had a radical daily pursuit of the holiness of God in all things, I think that it would be more common for somebody to come up to you and say, you know what, you are so different. What in the world is going on? Why didn't you do that? Why did you do that? How come you're always talking about this? Why are you always doing that? You're going so counterculture. I'm just curious, what is that all about? And maybe somebody would come to you when you began to share Christ with them and say, well, how, how can I get in on that? How can I be saved? How, how can I know more about Christ? This is what it is God's called us to do. He's called us to be very careful how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time, redeeming our time, because the days are evil, and you have so much time with that person that you, that you share 
a, a space with at work and so much time that you're on that team with that teammate that you know doesn't know Christ and only so much time at work before you get promoted to your next job or whatever. You have so much time and are you thinking about, you know what, I'm here for a season. I'm here for this moment. God, help me make it count. Help me to make it count for you. That's what Paul does. And this guy, that's why it's like falling into the basket. You know, it's like this fruit is ripe for harvest. It just falls in the basket. Paul obviously is going to share with him about Christ. Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. No doubt Paul talked to him about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the fact that Jesus came to bring new life for all who would repent and believe in him. And you got to believe in him with all your heart. It's John 1, 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the sons of God. That's what that jailer did in that very hour. He did just that. And then we see the transformation, your next blank, verses 32 to 34, this transformation of the jailer, this was for real for him. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we see here that at some point in these verses that they relocated from the jailhouse to this Philippian jailer's house, and Paul was able to continue to preach the word. Notice it says in verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to them. I think that Paul took some time. I think he opened up some type of scriptural basis to preach Christ to this jailer and to his family. They, they continued to point to Christ, and so this transformation of the jailer is now evident of he says, you know what? I need to wash your wounds. I need to give you some food. I need to take care of you guys are in a really tough situation. And he just began to care for him. In that moment, the Philippian jailer became like the good Samaritan. In that moment, he cared about the physicality in the sense of he wanted to care for, wash the wounds. He showed some respect. He showed some love and he cared about them. And so we see that the transformation again of the Philippian jailer is real. He wanted to get baptized, presumably, They may have gone to the same river where Lydia got baptized. We know there was that river there on the outskirts of the city. Um, It's discussed here that he and his household, and as I shared with you last time, I don't believe in household baptisms as as a family decision, but it's individuals in the household who were of age, who did respond to the gospel through repentance and faith, also, in addition to the Philippian jailer, chose to be saved. There's no evidence here of toddlers or infants being baptized. What is evident is that all of those in the Philippian household who heard the testimony of the jailer, heard the preaching of Paul and Silas, said, you know what? It's time for us to believe. It's time for us to put our faith in Christ. And there's a great and incredible testimony here of what's happening in this Philippian jailer and in his family's life. And that leads us to our last point today. Number five, strive to ensure the legacy of faith. We could end really on verse 34, but 35 through 40 show us a depth of wisdom that Paul has. Your next blank says the terror of the magistrates, the terror of the magistrates. Look at verse 35 and 36. It says, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported the words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent them to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. So again, you might be thinking, well, now the authorities say they can go. Why don't Paul just leave right now? You know, he could have left in the middle of the night. He didn't, he stayed. But now the magistrate said, you're really free to go. It's not just a jailbreak. You're legally free to go. Why doesn't he go? Well, remember, Paul is not trusting in the deliverance, but in the deliverer. And he had one more thing that he wanted to do in Philippi. And so these same men that had beaten Paul and Silas a day earlier, tell them they can go. And again, uh, apparently they had gone back to the jailer house after they had been at the Philippian uh, jailer's house. They went back to the jail house. And then verse 37 says this. 37 says, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into the prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Really, what we're seeing here is the fact that Jesus, 
as the good shepherd, always was concerned for his flock. Paul knows that he had to take steps that would protect the young sheep of Philippi. Paul refused to be disposed of so flippantly. He did not seek revenge, but he did not want his ill treatment to become a precedent for abuse of other Christians at Philippi. For Paul and Silas to have departed quietly could have set a dangerous precedent for future mistreatment of missionaries and exposed the believers to further persecution. You see, to inflict corporal punishment physical punishment on a Roman citizen that was uncondemned was a grave violation, especially if it was even done without a trial. And so the consequences, both for the magistrates and for the city, were potentially very serious. The magistrates could have been removed from office, and the emperor could have even rescinded Philippi's privileges as a Roman colony. So Paul knew this, and so he simply refused to allow the magistrates to compound their injustice by sending him and Silas away secretly. No, indeed, he responded, but let them come themselves and bring us out. So I'm just saying, this is not an issue of Paul's pride. This is not an issue of Paul saying, I'm going to get one up on them. He's just saying, hey, look, I'm holding you accountable to do what the law requires. And you guys have broken the law, so you guys will have to come and set me free in public so that people will know that we can't be treated in this way. And then we read in verses 38 and 39, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid. So now, now who's afraid? You would think it was Paul and Silas who were afraid of the authorities. Now the authorities are afraid of what it is Paul and Silas are saying because they realize they've broken the law. So they were afraid. And when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Now again, Paul and Silas could have stayed longer, but it could have also provoked more violence. Paul and Silas accepted this invitation, but they did so at their own time. Is your next blank there, if we haven't gotten to it already, did we get to that blank? The tenacity of Paul is what we're talking about, the tenacity of Paul. He's, he's kind of staying, he's kind of lingering, he's still fighting with the magistrates. They tell him now he can leave, and he says, you know what, not yet, because verse 40, so they went out of the prison. He's like, I'll take my time here, and he went and visited Lydia, and um, when he had seen the brothers... They encouraged them and departed. Now, I don't know how long that was, but you get the sense that he's like, I'm going to first visit Lydia. I'm going to encourage the brothers. We got a new church plant going. We got Lydia and some of those in her household. We've got the Philippian jailer and some in his household. And let me give them some instructions about how they can move forward in a God-honoring way. Now, at the beginning of this sermon, or sorry, of the whole chapter, I would say, we're closing Acts 16, And in this chapter, we've seen the faith of Timothy. He was saved partly through the influence of a godly mother and godly grandmother. We've seen the salvation testimony of Lydia, who was converted through the quiet conversation with Paul there on the edge of the river. And now we see this radical, dramatic, kind of like my life is on the line kind of conversion by the Philippian jailer. And I just simply want to point out different people have different testimonies and different experiences of how they get saved. But it's the same gospel, it's the same Lord Jesus Christ that must be preached and repented and to put our faith in. And at the beginning of the sermon, I also want to say one more thing about that bold witness of John Harper. We talked about the evangelist there on the deck of the Titanic. Let me tell you one more part of his story. Four years after the tragedy at a Titanic survivors meeting in Ontario, Canada, one survivor recounted his interaction with Harper in the middle of the icy waters of the North Atlantic. He testified that he was clinging to the ship's debris when Harper swam up to him and called him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Harper then bobbed away, came back again a few minutes later, and he says, have you believed yet? And then uh, this man witnessed Harper sink into a watery grave of some two miles of water underneath their feet. This man was able to hold on to the debris and he says that he repented that very hour in the North Atlantic and then a ship picked him up 
And he said at that meeting a few years later, I am the last convert of John Harper. Well, how about that? What an incredible story. It's an inspiring story that we would just take every breath, every moment, whether you're in the, the North Atlantic, whether you're in jail, and you're in neither, so you've got it a lot easier, right? But we would take every moment and say, you know what, I want to be that kind of witness, God. Would you give me a little bit more courage? Would you give me a little bit more boldness? Maybe you're here today, and, and maybe you're, you're, you're the one who needs to be converted, and you've been, you've been around church, you've heard about church, and you're thinking, man, if I was that Philippian jailer, I would have died and gone to hell. That's where I'm at this day. I, I'm calling you today to say, come to Christ. Come to Christ this very day. Understand that God is holy and that you are indeed a sinner and that you are condemned as we all are because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. But Christ came. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would this day put your faith in him, that you would believe in him with all your heart. It's just in one moment in time, the Philippian jailer believed and he was saved. And I'm calling you to that this very day. May God give us all a better appreciation of his love and forgiveness and the way that he works in our life, whether we're persecuted or whether we're praised. We want to do what we do to the glory of God and we want to maximize every opportunity God gives us to be a witness for him. As I close in prayer, we're going to sing one last song. If we could pray for you or encourage you or you want to respond to this message by giving your life to Christ today, we'll have a few people standing right by this door. We'd love to counsel with you after this final song. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at such a familiar passage for many of us, this conversion of the Philippian jailer. And hopefully we're leaving this morning with a few new truths, a couple of new insights, a few new Um, challenges that would encourage us as believers that no matter what we're going through today in our life and our trial that we would set our mind on things above where Christ is that you would help us to persevere in prayer and in song that we would be mindful that today oh God that we don't want to trust in our deliverance we want to trust in the deliverer be glorified as we sing this last song as we respond to the service as we interact together as family and friends that we would be more in love with you and more a faithful witness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.